You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, filmed in front of a live studio audience. Hello and welcome to The Film File, I'm Lee Ford. And I'm the new number two, Andy Beacon. You're not a number, you're a very naughty boy. <laughs> I think you crossed off two different uh, shows. Hybridity. Hybridity. <laughs> Monty Python's meaning of prisoner. <laughs> oh, that'd be interesting. How are you, my friend? I'm okay. I did have a midweek body shut down. You know how I've said like before that like I don't sleep much. And then every few yeah. every about three, four weeks, I'll have like a shutdown day where my body just refuses to do anything. And usually it works out nicely to my days off. It didn't this week. Oh, okay. And I spent a whole shift in work really fighting to not just fall asleep. And just stay in the office and do nothing because I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't Were get my mind focused tires? on stuff. I was fighting the tires. Once I got home, I just crashed, absolutely crashed. But I'm a lot more energetic now because I've now I've now recharged my batteries for the next three weeks. But it's still when it hits me like that, it it's really hard. It's hardest for getting home from work because once I'm sat on that bus. Oh boy, I have to fight to not miss my bus stop and end up in a completely different part of the country. It's dangerous. I mean, I've done it before now where I've woken up in Chesterfield. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that sounds, that sounds like an adventure. Which we could, when we it, could play a game. Where am I? <laughs> which, when it's the last bus that you were getting home from work and there was no more buses back to Sheffield, that made it a bit of a walk to get back home for three o'clock in the morning. I, I, I've never done that. I've never fallen asleep on a train or a bus and woke up in the wrong place. Um, <laughs> I've just had, I've just been not, not well. I've just not been great this week. I lost my voice or started to lose my voice about Wednesday. Had a gig uh, on the Saturday. So I was in a bit of a panic mode and just necking any kind of um, cold and flu remedy. Yeah. I played a show last night. We record this on a Sunday and uh, I've been awake about an hour and I don't know whether I'm, I'm still feeling ill yet. <laughs> so I just wait to catch up with me. <laughs> I'll know in about half an hour. Halfway through the show, you'll just hear this this uh, uh, guttural groan. I go, yes, I'm still poorly. But yeah, I, I had a real panic on when my voice went. So if Lee's audio goes a bit strange halfway through the show, it's not that I've edited it wrong. It's just that Lee's voice <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just gets gravelier and gravelier as we go on. But so far, so good. TV schedule feels a bit empty with Picard and Mandalorian both finishing last week. Yes, um, we've not really given our end of season reviews for that one. We've not, no. What did you think? Did they stick the land in or were they way off? I think both of them stuck the land in. However, one of them didn't stick the rest of the season. That's Mandalorian. Yes. The last two yeah, episodes of Mandalorian actually... were fantastic. They were a great little mini movie in and of themselves. But the rest of the season was just, oh, let's follow some random characters that have no relevance to the Mandalorian anymore for an episode. Let's just do celebrity cameos. Let's do one-off episodes and then got to the last two episodes like oh yeah we're supposed to have a story arc aren't we let's just cram it yeah i, I i'm total agreement with you i even got behind on mandalorian which i never normally mm. do unless I'm, I'm i'm away it didn't feel like essential viewing this season it didn't feel no. like you had to you know you're waiting for the next episode it was just like eh when it's here mm, maybe I, I did get to see something i've always wanted to see which are, are people with jetpacks 
flying around having battles, which I thought was awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, that, that, the fights in the final episode in particular were absolutely stunning. We got to see some beautiful, not only spaceship combat, but land combat, aerial combat, everything in one. It was pure Star Wars, but it took to the last two episodes to get there. Yeah, it felt like it had reached a natural conclusion. And, and we've heard rumours that Pedro Pascal basically just just dropped in and did a voiceover uh, this yeah. season. And it just felt sort of over and that kind of ending of The Mandalorian and uh, Baby Yoda just sort of settling down. And you think if, if they're going to close it, this is this is where they should do it. It's the ideal point. And, and it, it kind of reminded me, and, and you're far too young to remember this, there was a, a TV series, long-running TV series called The Virginian, which was yep. a, a Western, ran through the 60s and 70s, probably. I think it's the longest-running Western ever. Anyway, they, they lost their lead star and it became a show called Men from Shiloh, which was the ranch mm. where it was centred on. I kind of got the impression that's where they'll go with it. Instead of it being the Mandalorian, if they come back next season and call it Mandalorians, mm. then you could have this sort of uh, following other characters. I thought they could just follow Katie Sackhoff's character, and, and that would be interesting and in its own right, and, and just move on from, from looking at that one character and follow... Uh, a kind of almost an anthology series. Hey, just me, just thinking. Yeah, I can see that. But uh, Picard, on the flip side, not only stuck the landing, yes. but it, it felt like it built throughout the season. It, it yes. slowly seeded elements. It seemed at the start that it was just like a, almost episodic of the week, but you, then you realise, actually, these are recurring characters that are going to come back, and these threads are all weaving together. And by mid-season, it was so well-woven that you just knew it was building to something and it really, really delivered. The finale yes, had it me, it, it had me heart fluttering. It had me close to tears at points. And it was great to see all the Next Generation cast come back together and get the send-off they deserve. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it, it, it apologised for Nemesis to a degree. Yeah. And it was heartfelt. Yeah, it was great to see all those characters because you know what, they're not getting any younger, and this this was the out they deserved. Got to see them uh, relaxed, especially you know that that very last shot. I, I won't spoil it just in case yeah. anyone's not seen it yet. But I, I thought it was great. I, um, it took a couple of episodes for me to find it. I'll find its rhythms and when I did I thought it delivered perfectly I think some of the humour as well was so perfectly placed Jonathan Frakes as Riker responding to Worf's suggestion that and I will join for a three-way uh, mm. <laughs> it's like can you hear yourself yes. right now and I was just like this is great <laughs> this is perfect they've always said that like the next generation crew felt like family and you got that yeah, you got the fact that they are family and it played heavily into it. I mean, some people have said online, you know, it was, sad, it was a shame that um, Will Wheaton wasn't reprising as Wesley Crusher. He kind of got his cameo at the end of season two. And because of that character's journey has to, you know, has been specified that he can't return to see loved ones, friends and family. It makes sense. It's a shame that he wasn't there, but, you know, I'm fine with it because getting to see Getting to see Data, getting to see yes. Geordie, getting to, and getting to see the female characters, Dr. Crusher and Counselor Troy, doing something other than just saying, I, I sense a presence or you're better now. They had some intense drama moments. They had a reason for being there. Everyone yeah. had a chance to step up and be the characters that they always showed that they could have been. I thoroughly loved it. Thoroughly loved and, it. And they gave it a, a little bit like we we're talking about the Mandalorian, is they gave it an opportunity to to move on if they so mm. wish and do something with that. They gave a, a perfect ending 
which if they don't follow that route that they sort of set up, that'd be quite disappointing. Yeah. I would like to see those new characters and see where they go and see their stories. And it keeps Star Trek, it keeps that element of Star Trek alive. It won't surprise me if we get an announcement of either a TV series of Star Trek Legacy, or it'll be one of the Paramount Plus movies that they're mm. saying that they're going to be developing because it, it did feel like they were setting up the next next generation by the end of it. Indeed. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, last week, we did our socials. We did a social challenge and we asked, and, and I mentioned this on, on the back end of Star Trek, there was one episode of Star Trek in particular that had me hiding behind the cushions, the, the original series. And that was our question. What has scared you so much film, TV, that made you want to hide under the duvet behind the pillow into a loved one's armpit it doesn't have to be a scary movie it might be something that just gets under your skin in one particular scene but you were there to tell us and andy what were they telling us andy kennedy fingernails oh yeah i'm with you I, I said that fingernails every time Ooh. not just you know any scenes where fingernails get ripped back oh have to look away but yeah, in particular yeah. it's cringing now i'm cringing things now. under fingernails so those horror films that have like long metal splinters or shards under the fingernails and they have to slowly drag it out oh mm, yeah oh that's it i can feel my teeth on edge at this point in time so I completely agree with that carl hodkin uh for me it would be david's transformation in american werewolf in london oh yeah it's a stunning piece, piece of effects work and yeah i can i can see how yeah, like it was so visceral jar, yeah. and it had stay with me with this term it had gravity to it it, it yeah. felt like somebody's body was being ripped apart and also he knows it's not a horror film but in x-men senator kelly's death still can't watch that scene to this day and that isn't that the one where he ends up being liquefied and just like yes slops off the table yeah i mean it's it's early cgi effects work but i, I think it's i think it's how chillingly it's done that yeah. makes it harder to sit with over on facebook carl schofield just posted an image which was the shot from exorcist 3 from the scene which is a very long take of the nurse going in and out of rooms down the corridor and the, sh the shot is static and then as she comes out of one of them the shrouded figure with the knife comes behind her and Ooh, yeah yeah I, I think it's with that that's a scene that is so famous for like those proper like oh wow catching you off guard moments because it's so slowly paced there's nothing happening and then it just finishes with a zooming in at speed to reveal that figure dressed in white robes striding towards the nurse from behind carrying the surgical shears uh, yeah it, it, it's a, one of those scenes that puts you on edge angela said gas masks angela's got a, a yes 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 yeah, remembering that Doctor Who episode in particular, in which, do you remember, yeah. uh, Are You My Mummy? Yeah. Lindsay Story, things like cutting tendons, like in Pet Cemetery when Gage cuts the back of Judd's ankle, mm. or empty yeah. rocking chairs moving on their own. Um, with the cutting tendons, that made me, I, and this is the only thing that I remember from the whole lot of this film, the 2005 House of Wax remake. I've always remembered the cutting tendons oh, yes. moments from yeah, there. Yeah. Because that's the one part of that film that made me go, Ugh! and so I can get that. Anything with the back of the ankles, no, it just it just really puts me on edge. Um, over on Macedon, Thomas E. Gladwin, sudden scary faces as jump scares, they just ruin me. Like Mulholland Drive was just game over after the hobo scene, and then the old folk came in to finish me off. And my response to that is that Lynch is a master of making even the mundane seem disturbing. That scene yeah. stuck with me in very nightmarish manner long after the end credits rolled even though it wasn't necessarily a nightmarish film 
It's just his use of technique to really make everything feel unsettling is perfect. Proba D8, it's eyes for me. So saw also yeah. features. Have you ever seen that? Uh, so I think the classic uh surrealist film by brunel yes yep hey we get we dig deep on this show we do well probert also suggest like recommended that one as well mention that film and they're out of there uh which i completely get it's it's yeah it's creepy um we've also had mamonzi anyone having a needle stuck in them or anytime an eight-legged creature appears the scene in jumanji when they have sunk into the floor as well also gets her and i've sat next to my mum when spiders have popped up on screen <laughs> and the reaction is if you're sat too close you're going to have no blood in your arm because she'll grab onto it so hard and wrench it tightly you think that you're going to snap bones even if uh, wildlife shows when it's not even done in a scary way if a spider pops up on screen she reacts uh, oh really yeah uh, same as i would do if a clown was to walk into the room that i'm recording now i'll be generally tale of two sisters shit him up a bit back in the day <laughs> okay hey if you're listening uh with children uh, andy did use that in a sentence <laughs> and i think this is a thing with uh i mean i've said before when we've spoken about your j horrors is they've got an unnerving way of making everything seem disturbing and creepy and it yes. makes it makes some of the scarier moments very hard to watch uh, Janet Melling, Room 1408 still haunts me. Every time I, she hears the song, We've Only Just Begun, she gets shivers. And there was a black and white film that she watched years ago with her mum called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Boarded up fireplaces as a result. Scare the living bejesus out of her. Oh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. From from what I remember, and I'm just wondering if if it's it's one of those where you, you memory doing two mm. things. There was... Um, the film with Audrey Hepburn, Wait Until Dark, which was black and white, uh, about uh, a, a recently blinded woman who finds herself under siege, uh, and, and that was scary. But Don't Be Afraid of the Dark was was the one that Guillermo del Toro remade. It was a was an old TV movie about a couple who inherit an old mansion, and, and it's it's inhabited by like small small goblin creatures. creatures, weren't they? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is great. It's starred Kim Darby. Thinking on it, I, I, I know what she's talking about with the fireplaces because it's the bricked up fireplace that when they remove the bricks, they find that there's a passageway descending down. And that's that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they did the uh, they did the remakes a couple of years back, produced by produced and written by Del Toro, directed by Troy Nixie, which was okay. It kind of gets overlooked. Yeah. Um, Helen Blair said that in terms of horror and her pretty much everything. <laughs> there's no one thing to make a high behind a blanket she hide behind a blanket on pretty much anything uh, for myself i've mentioned it before but syringes i can't watch a scene mm. in a film with a syringe i've got a phobia of syringes the same way that my mum will react when a spider comes on screen i will react when a syringe is on screen even if it's not being used in a threatening way i have to look away so even if it's just like a standard injection on a tv show Nope, I have to look away. Oh, okay. That scene in Saw 2 with the pit of syringes, I've never watched in its entirety because the first time that I saw it, I had to look away and even just hearing it, I felt nauseated. Um, but I don't hide behind a blanket. I do this thing where when I'm watching a horror film, I will lift my T-shirt up and place it over <laughs> my nose. Okay, that's that's a childhood uh, a childhood throwback right there. You're regressing, my friend. Yeah, You're regressing. Buried me head into my T-shirt when we were watching the Saw films with my daughter. She was like, "Why'd you keep doing that?" And Kerry just said, "He always does it when he's watching horrors because that's my comfort is uh, just to just to lose my nose." <laughs> okay, lose your nose. Uh, martyrs. 
Do you remember Martyrs, the original yeah. French version? The the flaying scene in that was uh, uh, was was horrible. I couldn't I couldn't watch it. Were you too afflayed? <laughs> oh, I was too afflayed. I was what you did there. <laughs> the end of Don't Look Now. Yeah, the classic scene in the end of of uh, Don't Look Now, and it's the final sequence. Everything falls into place with that. Yeah, uh, dreadful, awful logic of what 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 preceded it. But that that moment made me leap out of my skin. I had nightmares about that. Uh, anytime anybody used to age, if they aged very mm. quickly, um, a couple of TV series I mentioned the original Star Trek. There was a, a the Deadly Years episode. Any anything like that would always always really really scare me. So yes, thank you for those. Um, I've now got nightmare horror in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing what scares you in films and TV. And that leads us nicely on to this week's social challenge. So we now know what scares you, but let's go in another direction. What makes you tear up? Any particular scene, any particular movie, anything that somebody does in a film that makes you want to well up inside, have it to hide behind a cushion so you don't want anybody to see your crying face because that can be upsetting alone. So scenes, movies, or things that make you well up, shed a tear in a movie or TV series of your choice. The old excuse of like, oh, I've got a bit of dust in my eye. Yeah, I've got something in my eye. I'm not crying, honestly. <laughs> I'm not, not crying. Uh, some dust just le leapt off the floor. <laughs> and it could be the silliest thing. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's, um, I, I well up when I see other people crying. That mm. always gets me. If uh, uh, I'm seeing somebody else cry in a movie, that that makes me makes me start to well. There are a couple of movies I can go through preparing myself. I can film myself now. Getting you know, I'm doing the. <sighs> anyway, answers through our socials. Andy, where can they find us? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Mastodon, Instagram. You can reply to us via Spotify, where the question will get posted alongside the episode. You can find us anywhere. Just search for Film File UK. There we are. So, what have we got for you this week? Well, we've got reviews of... Missing that landed at cinemas in recent weeks. Polite Society, that's brand new at cinemas at the moment. And Peter Pan and Wendy, the latest Disney Plus live-action adaptation of an earlier animation. We have a deep dive this week, not into a movie. Well, it was nearly a potential movie, but a TV series. The iconic The Prisoner. We've got lots of chat, we've got lots of discussion, we've got the box office, and we've got the news. So it's been a quiet week, cinema-wise. Uh, we had the Evil Dead movie, we still have Super Mario, but what else? could be charging up the charts so it's still mario in the lead at the box office in the us it took the top slot again with 40.8 million evil dead rises in second place taking 12.1 million are you there god it's me margaret is in third place with 6.7 million star wars episode 6 return of the jedi the reissue hit fourth place with 5.1 million and john wick chapter 4 with 4.9 million here in the uk a few differences in there Star Wars doesn't even break the top 10 in the UK. Might be something to do with the bizarre decision by Disney to only release it for the 40th anniversary 
on 40 cinemas across the UK. Have they lost out on taking a huge chunk of money? Well, number four in the US kind of suggests that that might be the case. But anyway, Super Mario Brothers in first place, as expected. Evil Dead Rise taking second place again. Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Amongst Thieves, still holding into the top five in the UK. Third place. Air is in fourth place. And just about creeping into the top five is Polite Society, which I'll be reviewing later in the show. Super Mario, at this point in time, has just passed 1 billion at the worldwide box office after only 26 days. So astounding news for, the, for Mario. Mm. To be honest, who'd have thought it? Guardians is out. Guardians 3 is out next week, and we'll have to see what impact that makes. But is this the future? It's very possibly, because the billion-dollar films that we've had over the past year have all been nostalgia taps. You've had Maverick, you've had Avatar. Now you've got an animated family adventure. This is potentially the future for the billion-dollar franchises. The superheroes, have they had the day? We'll know more in the next few weeks when we see how Guardians performs. But it's looking like audiences' tastes and expectations are shifting. And this happens about every 10 years in the cinema industry. Yeah. Different fads, different things grab people's attentions. And if you overdo it, you'll put people off too soon. Yeah, and, and we've seen that. And we'll we'll discuss more about that once we know what, what Guardians is going to do uh, next week. Where I'm expecting it to be at least number one in the uh, uh, worldwide charts. But that's, again, dependent on, on what kind of a drop-off it gets. And that's the worry. But we'll talk about that later. Let's talk about something more positive for now. It's been a reasonably slow week, despite the fact that CinemaCon took place last week. The con itself this year was mostly footage and buzz about things that were already in production or already in the can and ready to be released. And so there was no real news that came out of it. But why this slowdown in the industry of news? Well, there's a potential Writers Guild strike looming. Yes, I saw that. I'm a WG UK member. Mm. I don't think that affects my writing in any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Shall I write today? No. Uh, we'll know for sure whether this strike's taking place by next week as the decision is being made this coming week as to whether they're going to accept a deal that has been proposed for more fair pay and treatment. And this has become more complicated in recent years because of this sudden shifting between streaming and box yeah. office contracts are get, having to get renegotiated. And we saw it with the acting profession. We saw like um, Scarlett Johansson's taking Disney up on the fact that Black Widow ended up straight to streaming as she lost revenue as a result and she ended up getting a payout. So all contracts are having to get reconsidered to this project, which is intended for the film, might end up being on TV instead. And this has caused complications. Now, last time that the Guild did a strike was back in 2007, 2008. Yeah, do you remember it affected uh, Quantum of Solace, if I remember? Yeah, Quantum of Solace started shooting without a finished script, <laughs> and the telltale signs of that are all over it. Apparently, even Daniel Craig had to come up with some ideas for scenes as the film was getting made. Uh, George Miller's Justice League plans were completely scrapped. That's right. And... TV productions were affected left, right and centre. Lost went completely off the rails because they condensed the seasons down, shrunk them because they didn't have enough to go with and people got bored of it pretty soon. Heroes was seriously impacted with the quality of the latter seasons as a result. Everything that it can impact on causes issues and one of the big issues is that if there's no if the writers are striking you could say the script is in the bag but productions need a writer available on set as well to That's make right. changes on spec because as you're shooting a film you suddenly realize some things don't quite work and that's when 
the writing happens. Now, while some directors are writer-directors, if they then interfere and start tackling the scripts themselves, that causes additional complications. I mean, famously, during the last writer's strike, uh, Michael Bay wrote the script for one of the Transformers films himself. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've just... Let me finish laughing first. In crayons, probably. Uh, we just <laughs> boom, boom, boom all over it. Uh, because of all the guild operations around the industry, if someone from a different part of the sector starts stepping on the toes of a protected guild member's work, then that causes legal issues. So they've got to be very careful, which might say that if this strike takes place, we might see not only a slowdown in production, but release dates will start to shift for things as early as the back end of this year we will start to see things like you know willy wonka might get moved to easter because they'll need some content to keep them over through the next financial year yeah. so we'll know more by the end of this week so on next week news we'll cover it a bit more but at this point in time not a lot of news simply because the industry is ready for a potential upheaval so yes what used to happen is the writer would make residuals of their work so they would get that from vhs at that point dvds mm. blu-rays and now that's out of the market the writer has to get their residuals from somewhere and that's one of the issues that's being discussed and as you said the move from streaming to um, to cinema it's a it's a it's a brand new a brand new ground now every writer wants to get paid for what they've done. The writer, to some extent, is always sort of the bottom of the list in most films anyway. So uh, totally understandable. Um, they're fighting for their slice of the pie that they they deserve. Everybody else gets something. And yeah. We're talking top tier, except the writer. So uh, good luck to the WGA. I hope they can sort it out. They don't want to go into a strike. That's the worst thing that could happen for everybody. But you know what? Studios are the only ones who are not, not making money on this. Yeah. So, moving on. Well, even though there's not much news, for one person in particular, there's two pieces of news. So, this is just Ooh. greedy. Uh, Nick Pizzolatto, who you'll recognise the name from being the person behind True Detective, is working not only on plans for a Magnificent Seven series for Amazon Prime, but also he's now on board the Blade film. Yes, well, he worked with Mayashar Ali on season three of True Detective. Uh, the kind of the comeback series. Um, interesting that Palazzo is not involved with season four. The, the trailer dropped to Detective season four. Looks pretty good. So I'm interested. Yeah, a good writer. And clearly they have a relationship. Uh, and clearly it shows the star's involvement in this particular project, how important it is to them. So good news. And I'm also really intrigued by the Magnificent Seven TV series as well. Yeah, Amazon had been pursuing a Magnificent Seven for a while. They wanted it to be the Amazon version of Yellowstone revolving around a former outlaw who must protect his new life. But that's now evolved under Pizzolatto's ideas to follow an outlaw and his cohorts who unite a disparate band of fighters to defend a settlement of immigrant homesteaders in an open range war against cattle barons. It's pure Western. It's pure Magnificent Seven. And it's not new for Pizzolatto to touch the Magnificent Seven. That's right, that's right. Because he co-wrote the 2016 remake, which starred Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, and Ethan Hawke. So he's got he's got form on this. I'm, I'm well and truly down with it. Looking forward to both projects. I, now that Blade hopefully is finally going to go into production, although if Guardians doesn't perform, we might see this get severed. So I'm not holding my breath on any productions coming up. But quite a nice uh, bit of news for at least one writer within yes. uh, the world at the moment. So I got a bit of news. I didn't even know that this was a thing. It went completely under my radar. But Sir Kenneth Branagh is returning, or has in fact returned, 
with a brand new Poirot movie, A Haunting in Venice. And the trailer dropped this week. I didn't even know this was in production. Yeah, um, we kind of knew that he wanted to keep making these films. But yeah, th this kind of came from nowhere. Now, I don't know how, how long this one's been in production. I don't know whether this was already in production before the very long delayed Death on the Nile came out. Because if you remember, that was supposed to come out before the lockdowns. Yeah, that's what that's what kicked it into the long grass, wasn't it? Yeah, so th this might have already been in the can well before, but here we are. We've got a haunting in Venice. I'm looking forward to it. I know that Death on the Nile wasn't anywhere near the quality of Murder on the Orient Express, but it, it was still something nice and classic murder it. mystery. I enjoyed it. I agree. I don't think it, it was as strong as uh, Murder on the Orient Express. I thought Brano was fabulous in it i just think it's 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 not as exciting or as interesting a story as as murder on the orient express yeah haunting in venice has the advantage of being a much lesser known yeah. tale of poirot so you know whereas like we've we've seen so many adaptations of murder on the orient express and we've seen so many of death on the nile this is based on halloween party from agatha christie so it's kind yeah. of a, a new film that we've not seen before so you won't have that expectation for it i'm there for it i do like kenneth branner in that role i think he gives a great poirot and casting's looking pretty good tina fey yeah. jamie dornham jude michelle hill Yeoh. emma laird yeah michelle yo great names as you'd expect from one of these productions looking forward to that that was a bit of a surprise one for me yes uh, the Flash was shown at CinemaCon, and word of mouth looks pretty good on it. Yeah, the, uh, the, the it's very positive. And you have to take a lot of this with a pinch of salt at times, because sometimes it's just the excitement of being in there at the time when it gets screened. But saying that, at the same time, the footage that they've seen of Aquaman 2 hasn't impressed those same people. So they're not just latching no. on and just hyping things up because they got to see it early. So it's very possible that The Flash is going to take the boxes. And this was an unfinished cut as well that they saw. Okay. There's mentions that some of the effects looked a bit ropey because it's not quite ready yet. But The Flash might be a crowd pleaser. Uh, a new trailer for The Flash was released alongside CinemaCon this past week. Gave us more of Batman in there. And I don't think I need to see any more trailers for the flash at all because i think they're now going to run the risk of just giving away too much we've got just over a month to wait to get to watch it let's just wait and hang off now um sticking with dc pom clementif has signed up to play a role in dc under james gunn everybody will be won't they? anybody that james gunn's worked with they're all gonna just uh, gonna come work with him again of course the cast who he's who he works with all love working with him and they're very strong and supportive of each other so if he can find a role for people who he likes playing with he's going to pick them a role we don't know what role she's going to be playing details are, are under wraps but at some point someone will ask james gonna question and he'll say yeah go on then it's that one i'll reveal it now uh, so everyone's already started speculating throwing names at him and just seeing what how he responds to each of them also with dc amazon has officially confirmed that they've issued two season order for Matt Reeves's and Bruce Timm's animated Batman Cape Crusader. Oh, good news. And they've also picked up an original animated film titled Merry Little Batman, along with the animated spin-off series Bat Family, both from Warner Brothers Animation and DC. Merry Little Batman and Bat Family are younger skewing. Cape Crusader will be older skewing for audiences. So whilst HBO Max, or just Max as they call themselves, are kind of like stepping back from making anything to do with anything these days, Amazon have come to the rescue. Sticking in the world of animation, Transformers 1, the animated Transformers movie, will star Chris Hemsworth as Optimus Prime and Brian Tyree Henry will voice Megatron. And I know you're still receiving counselling for the Winnie the Pooh film, but rest assured there is a TV series in the works 
titled Christopher Robin, which returns Winnie the Pooh to the much beloved world that you grew up with. And this is going to be a live action CG R-rated TV series. With regards to Transformers, the new trailer for Rise of the Beasts landed this week as well and reveals something that I didn't know. Unicron is, is in it. I have no Unicron. idea what a Unicron. You keep saying it, Andy. It's, I, I still don't know. Who is this Unicron you speak of? Have you ever watched the animated movie? No. No? Yeah, you'll have no idea. It, it, was, the, <laughs> it, it was the giant world-killing Transformer that was basically the Cybertron and Unicron were two diverse worlds, one good, one evil. Unicron came to destroy Earth. A lot of, lot of story to get to go through with you, but I'm sure that you won't be sat next to me when I watch Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'll be doing that thing, won't you? Oh, look who it is. I'm going, uh, still don't know. Yep. Nope, I haven't you'll got be it. Look, it's, it's, it's Freddy Con. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Dodgeball 2. It's been long hinted that everyone involved with Dodgeball had a desire to do a sequel. And now it looks like it's finally going to happen. Is it too long in the waiting? Well, we've only mentioned earlier about how nostalgia seems to be playing into a factor of what makes success these days. And I can't help but think that this is just one example of them tapping into that nostalgia. Uh, Vince Vaughn is set to return in the sports comedy, which has been scripted by Jordan Bandina, who is responsible for Animaniacs. The Binge and 48 Hours in Vegas, just for Animaniacs alone. I'm there for that writer. Uh, it's based on an idea from Vaughn himself, and it's not clear yet whether the original film's writer-director, Rawson Marshall Thurber, will be involved. It's also not clear if any of the original cast will return, but let's be honest, it'd be wonderful to see Ben Stiller come back, and it'd definitely be wonderful to see Alan Tudyk uh, reprise his role. I'd like to see them all reprise, to be honest with you. Yeah. Justin Long, Christine Taylor, Gary Cole, Jason Bateman. Can they can they milk the idea or will it be Anchorman 2? I don't know, but I'm keeping my eye open. Freaky's writer, Michael Kennedy, next slasher mashup is, along with director Tyler McIntyre, it's going to be It's a Wonderful Knife. So basically they're doing a horror take of my favourite film. Yes, so a year after saving her town, the idyllic angel falls from a psychotic killer on Christmas Eve. Winnie's life is less than wonderful. But then she wishes she'd never been born. She finds herself in a nightmare parallel universe and discovers that without her, things could be so much, much worse. And the killer is back. And she must team up with the town's misfits to identify the killer and get back to her own reality. So it stars uh, Yellow Jackets James Widdop alongside Joel McHale, Jesse McLeod, Aidan Howard, Hannah Huggins, Catherine Isabel and Justin Long. I, I want to be excited because I love these genre mashups, but they're treading on hallowed ground for me here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to quickly move away to another treading on hallowed ground. And at CinemaCon, Craven footage was shown. Oh, was it? I know the rhino's in it. That's all I, all I know. It's been confirmed to be a rated R. It'll be Sony's first R-rated Marvel film. Those in, who are in attendance have said that they can see why it'll get rated R because the footage they saw was bloody violent and ferocious. The clip that they saw had Craven, played by Aaron Taylor-Johnson, stopping a caravan of poachers and quickly killing all six of them. One scene sees him biting a man's nose off and spitting it at the camera because, <laughs> why not? Um, another has him using bear traps to ensnare enemies and there's a lot of stabby, stabby, stabby. It sounds just like Craven, except for he's attacking poachers and conserving wildlife because... Craven the Hunter. Anyway, yeah. the clip also revealed that, like you said, the rhino is going to be in the feature. Someone says in the clip, don't you want to know why they call me the rhino whilst trying to transforming into the character Virus Serum? So it's not going to be the rhino-esque character that we saw in the robotic suit in uh, previous outings. They're going for a serum which morphs his body 
into the Rhino. We'll get to see a trailer sometime over the summer. And that's when we'll be able to make our own decisions as to whether this is going to be up our alley or in our pit. Joining Ariane Debose and the fantastic, we mentioned him earlier, Alan Tudyk, uh, Chris Pine is playing King Magnifico in Disney's Wish. Last week, we spoke about the Pinchers Assault news items and speculation, particularly around Fantastic Four. Well, now it's time to open that salt jar and swallow a whole load as we just delve <laughs> a bit further into some more rumours that have come out. Now, we mentioned last week on the casting of Invisible Woman that Mila Kunis was rumoured. Well, she's gone on on the record to say she's not going to be playing Invisible Woman at all. Don't know. She doesn't know where that rumour's come from. And now there's speculation that because she has been seen speaking to people involved in it, she's going to be playing The Thing. Okay. Uh, for those who don't know who The Thing is, in the classic Fantastic Four, The Thing is Ben Grimm, the astronaut who accompanies the other three on that fabled mission that gave them all their powers and becomes a huge, chunky rock creature called The Thing. Now, important to note that if they cast Mila Kunis as The Thing, it doesn't necessarily have to be an alternate version of Ben Grimm, because anyone who knows their Fantastic Four comic book's history knows that there has been a female Thing, particularly from the late 80s to the mid-90s. The character of Sharon Ventura, who was one of the Ms. Marvels, became a female Thing. So this isn't something that is brand new, despite the fact that some fanboys out there who claim that the huge fans seem to have ignored the fact that a she-thing is part of canon law and are starting to moan saying, wokeism, wokeism, because, you know, while they're crying their angry fanboy tears at females having uh, powerful roles, you know, that's the only word that they can use to disguise their sexism, misogyny, racism, whatever, wokeism. I'm not against it, but like I said, swallow loads of salt because every, everything at the moment is just speculation. But apparently Kunos has already come out and said that that's not happening. Yeah, but Benedict Cumberbatch said that he was nothing to do with Marvel. That's right. Everyone who's been cast in a Marvel film always at some point has that statement of like, no, I'm not involved in this. And then three weeks later, it's like, ah, I got you. It's like, Mm, you didn't though, did you? Because we knew. We'll get more news on this in coming weeks, I reckon, because it's getting to that time that there's so much speculation going on. Something's about to happen. Arnold Schwarzenegger is set to star in an action thriller called Breakout, which hails from Need for Speed and Expendables Force filmmaker Scott Well. Um, he's got to play Terry Reynolds after his stepson, stepson is framed and sentenced to serve 25 years in a foreign country. He makes it his mission to break him out of jail. He has to dodge prison wardens and race against time to aid his stepson flee from the country. Just sounds like a, a, a standard action template. But, you know, it's the, going to be the first return to action for Schwarzenegger after Terminator Dark Fate, ahead of his Netflix series, Fubar, which releases next month. And I'm thinking, Andy, that's nearly it for this week, except, of course, right at the end, we have to do uh, the sad passing. And this week, there was the sad passing of Harry Belafonte. He was an American singer. He was an actor. He was an activist. He popularized Calypso music to international audiences in the 1950s. But as a, an actor, he was known for starring in such films as Carmen Jones, Island in the Sun, Odds Against Tomorrow. Book and the Preacher, Uptown Saturday Night, and he made his last screen appearance in Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Mm. For geek fans, of course, you've got to go to Beetlejuice. Yes, uh, in Beetlejuice, his Banana Boat song became iconically famous thanks to Tim Burton's love of that music himself and inserting it into a few key moments of the film. Great music. But it's one of, one of those people that you recognise pretty much any of his music that he's done. 
and you don't realise that you've actually seen him on screen in so many things. I completely forgot that he was in Black Klansman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was his, his final appearance. He, he wasn't well at the time, mm. but he really wanted to do that. Uh, for me, it was a film called The World, The Flesh and The Devil. It's a, a, a 1950s science fiction film, a doomsday apocalyptic film, uh, in which Belafonte, who uh, was then at the peak of his film career, and it's set in a, a post-apocalyptic world with only a few human survivors, and it's terrific. I have not seen it for years and years and years, uh, but if it ever does pop up, it's quite a brave film for when it came out. Um, Co-starring Gus Stevens and Mel Ferreira, and it is well worth seeing. So our condolences to Harry Belafonte's family, but his work will live on through his music. And that, folks... That's the news. You know, in this crazy world that we call podcasting, there's only one film show you should be subscribing to, and that's The Film File. Wait a minute, I'm getting a report that not all of you have subscribed. Andy, not all of them have subscribed. I think that's disgraceful. So I'm going to tell you now, this is your last chance. You subscribe to the podcast, or you give us a very valid reason why you're not subscribing. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself waking up in a room in a village somewhere. Oh, I see what you did there. You you foreshadowed. Where we will extract the information as to why you're not subscribing. It's easy to do. So avoid being abducted and placed in a remote village on the edge of like strange territory filled with mountains and press that subscription button. And feel free to leave us a like. Feel free to leave us a review. Feel free to send us some messages. You know what to do. Yeah, drop us a line. You can drop us a line across all of the socials. Let us know what your favourite films are. Let us know what films you want to deep dive. Just let us know. Drop us a line. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. This week's Deep Dive is not a movie. This week's Deep Dive is a TV series. This week's Deep Dive is basically the epitome of a cult series. Yes, we're talking about 1967's The Prisoner. It starred Patrick McGowan. It only ran for 17 episodes. And even though it's about 1960s counterculture, surrealism and spies, throwing a little bit of science fiction and fantasy, this is one of those shows that people are still talking about. Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> so you'll know this series by the famous line, I am not a number, I am a free man. And it starred, and it was created by Patrick McGowan, who played the lead role as number six. Some say this was an offshoot of his TV series, Danger Man, and the unnamed secret agent is abducted and taken to what appears to be an idyllic village, but is some kind of really bizarre prison. His wardens demand information. What that information is, we don't know. Does number six know? This is the epitome of cult sci-fi television. Uh, I remember seeing it because my dad was a huge fan and when Channel 4 showed it again in its entirety he insisted that i watch it and i've got to say thanks dad because this is one of the most intriguing sometimes baffling kind of series that i don't think could ever be made in this day and age and is 
an allegory of sort of Orwellian times. It's postmodern. It is uh, bizarre at every level. The series, and no spoilers, still remains unanswered. It is an, an intriguing piece of television. And Patrick McGowan, as the star, was suave, sophisticated, bought into everything. He created it with, well, it's been discussed, uh, George Markstein, but there's a lot of controversy in that. In fact, there's a lot of controversy about the entire show. But if you want to see something surrealistic, something that you talk about probably for the rest of your lives, then you must watch the prisoner and andy you're a huge fan i know this i am i have t-shirts i have pin badges i have books i have comics i have the, all the dvds i've got a map of the village in my hand at the moment that's how much of a fan i am i adore the prisoner and the same as you it was thanks to those early years of channel four when they showed it in its entirety and for me it was my mum who said you should watch this and thanks mum because it became immediately my one of my favourite shows of all time. It's what starts on the surface as a spy drama about a resigned agent who may or may not have a secret reason for quitting. And so he's abducted and taken to the village where the controller's there, number two, and the never seen number one. Hope to find out what he knows and why he resigned. But it swiftly became something much greater as episodes suddenly jump to tackle society and political issues skewed looks at corruption in government the balance of the whole against the individual individuality versus collectivism really collectivism uh, the yeah. un unreliable aspect of memory and the whole concept of identity is explored through such a bizarre mix of episodes some of them which start off feeling like a typical spy genre he's trying to escape he manages to get out chimes of big ben is a masterpiece of storytelling itself and that was broadcast as the third episode but it's considered the fifth episode in the canon chain of it it, right. it was all it was shown completely out of order every time that it was shown so it's hard to say which episode is which until you get towards the back end of the series and there was also um, a, a whole episode which was a western which patrick mcgowan oh, wasn't even in because he was off shooting something else at the time he was doing i station zero and so they um, cast someone else for the role with the whole contrivance that they've replaced his identity and transferred his memory, transferred his brain inside someone else. And it plays a Western. And it gave them a chance to just do a Western. And it works. Bizarrely, it all works. And I love the fact that this is a series that never answers the questions that it sets up, especially when it's a series that the signs around saying questions are a burden and answers a prison for oneself. And then it never answers stuff and you become locked into that prisoner aspect yourself trying to decipher the coded aspects of the show whilst just enjoying the episodic nature of each week so let's break it down a little bit for those who've not seen the the prisoner so number six wakes up in this mysterious coastal location just known as the village the residents are prisoners uh some are other spies some are embedded spies or guards all we know is that the village is surrounded by mountains on three sides and sea on the other anybody who tries to escape will trigger the arrival of a rover a seemingly intelligent capture pod which is basically a huge translucent balloon it repatriates the escapees uh, whoever make it out to sea sometimes kills them asphyxiating them uh, whoever is in it is instructed to by number two and number two, uh, if I remember correctly, was always played by um, a different actor. I remember Patrick Cargill playing one. I remember number two being replaced. And it was 
Leo McKern is the one who reprised the role for three episodes. Yeah, Leo McKern. We never know who number one is. The the look of the the show was was very bizarre. The villagers wear sort of a standard uh, uniform, uh, a blazer with with piping and a huge pin badge which says their number. Multicolored capes, striped sweaters, plimsolls, uh, straw boaters. Uh, it's a very very bizarre place there was a, a taxi service that operated around the village it was purely a very very 1960s design and a sense of uh a sense of coming into sort of hippiedom that was starting to to uh define society at the time I, it, it's hard to talk about because mcgoohan created a series that was counterculture tv whilst we never find the secret reason for why number six resigned uh, i know that you hinted that george markstein the co-creator suggested that one of the ideas that they had was that that spy who became number six originally came up with the idea of the village when he was working for the agency but then realized how terrible such a thing and monstrously inhumane it would be and so like said we shouldn't go through with these plans only to find out years later that the agency had built one based on his idea and it was he discovered it existed and that's why he's angrily resigning on that op famous opening credits to that brilliant brilliant music yeah that holds up well as a reason why you'd get that anger but it's never been confirmed and there's been so many discussions as to whether there actually was a reason that he resigned or whether it was just was he getting put in to the village deliberately did he want to get abducted to get put in there to find out what's happening in there because it was another spy organization that was running it none of these questions are answered and that's what i love it was intended to be seven episodes long originally when they came up with the idea but then they realized that lou grade who was the uh was the head honko at, uh, at atv at the time yeah he wouldn't have greenlit something for just seven episodes so mcgowan said two seasons of 13 episodes each and as they were filming the 13th episode of the first season, Grade told them, I'm pulling the plug on it. He agreed to let them have four more episodes to wrap it up, for which McGowan had no idea how he was going to end it. And so we got the beautiful double bill of Once Upon a Time leading straight into Fallout to wrap up absolutely nothing and leave you completely <laughs> confused. <laughs> I mean, this was a, a series about confusion. I mean, you talk about sort of theories. McGowan had been popular as a character called John Drake in a series mm. called The Secret Agent. And uh, it was many believe that um, number six is the same character, even though McGowan has stated that they weren't the same. But if you read one of the novels, novelizations, it refers to number six as Drake in its very, very first sentence. So this is what the what the show was about. It's about subterfuge. It was about mystery all the way through. You can't talk about the prisoner without talking about the village and talking in particular about its location. So a lot of it was shot on studio, but the exteriors were shot primarily in a place called Port Mirian, uh, which is in uh, Port Madog in North Wales. I have been, and it is a fantastic place. The The look of the of, of Port Mirian is, is based around sort of a, a Italian architecture. It is the most surreal place that you can ever go. It is a fantasy land. The way that it looks, the, 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 the sense of itself, it feels incredibly, incredibly surreal. And you can go and visit, you can stay there for, for as long as you want, including the, the fantastic Port Mirian Hotel. But I stayed in one of the, the little lodges which are were featured in it, and many residents from the, the town played extras in uh, the prisoner. And it all adds to this sense of 
postmodernism, this sense of mystery that surrounds and continues to surround the prisoner. I think the otherworldly look and feel of Port Merion helps this show stand up well today because it seems like a, a, a place out of time in and of itself yeah. and because it's got such a unique look it doesn't seem that oh well this is a product of the 60s it could very well be a product of the 80s 90s anything because it's it's an alternate kind of world setting almost it's interesting that so many concepts that the show tackles are just as relevant today as they were back then some of them sadly so but when you add in the fact that the village has constant surveillance of all the inhabitants and at one point, one of the number twos states that the village is a template for the actual world. It seems oddly prophetic looking around at this point in time and seeing the world that we live in where we're under constant surveillance anyway, that maybe, you know, the village was a template for what the world was to become. And that's what we're living in now. We are all in the village now. And this is what this show does to you. It gets you actually starting to doubt your own reality. I've probably woken up in a different world. I've got a lot of love for this. And it's one of those shows that I think the first episode feeds you in quite nicely without becoming too confusing and complex. It feels initially on that first episode like a spy has been kidnapped and he wants to escape. And then after the, that episode, that's when it starts to play with the ideas and the concepts. And by the time it becomes a bit more surreal and bizarre, you're already caught in. You're already latched into this plight and you already want to know more. So McGowan was a, a fantastic leading man. He had a, he was very, very charismatic on screen. Ties to Sheffield. People say that he was from Sheffield. I don't think that's true. What I know that he uh, was in rep in Sheffield for an awful yeah. long time. I think my parents remember seeing him in a play. He, uh, he never had the kind of uh, success that he deserved uh, and will always be in the shadow of his, his greatest creation. The, the series still has a legacy. There have been uh, games. There have been comics. Uh, DC released a, a great series called uh, Shattered Shattered Visage, yeah, uh, which is a four-part run, which was excellent. Which was very really, controversial really with the fandom. Yes, it, it's a kind. It's an authorized sequel to the series. Dean Motter and Mark Asquith worked on it, set twenty years after the series. However, it almost ignores the events of Fallout, which a lot of fans get a bit upset with. I think it's a great piece. Number six is still in conflict with Leo McKern's number two. So it's almost as though the events of that final episode spun off in a different direction. And maybe you could take the stance that that final episode, Fallout, was just another part of the, the testing and the breaking of number six. And whilst it didn't take place, it mentally took place as number six was breaking down. And that's where Shattered Visage kind of picks up. There was interestingly going to be a Marvel series based upon The Prisoner, which Jack Kirby wrote and drew, but for some reason never appeared. But you can find artwork online of uh, Jack Kirby's interpretation of The Prisoner. Now, there's two things that go very well together. There was a remake in 2009, a TV series which starred Jim Casaville as number six and Ian McKellen, but thankfully it didn't do well and has been resigned to everyone clearly forgetting that it ever happened. It was okay. It was okay. I, I dropped I out of the first episode. I think the problem that it had is that what made the original Prisoner work so well is each episode could be its own individual story and would go in strange, sometimes contrasting directions. But the six-parter tried to keep one consistent thread running through the whole thing, and the prisoner should never be that. The prisoner should be used to tell different stories within this framework to analyse self-identity 
politics, etc. Whatever you want to do, having a, a six part limited series following one story, it kind of dragged it a bit too much. Great cast though, Caviezel and McKellen and uh, Ruth Wilson, all absolutely on fine form. It just didn't quite work. Uh, Big Finish Productions, the uh, company who do the long-running audio dramas based on Doctor Who, produced an audio drama based on The Prisoner, which came out in 2016. Right. Christopher Nolan was, was reported to consider a film version way back in 2009. Uh, Ridley Scott announced he wanted to direct a screen version back in 2016. And interestingly enough, Mel Gibson was behind a big screen take on The Prisoner, which had McGowan's backing. And if you get to go to uh, Port Mirian, there is a letter on uh, a printed letter uh, in a frame in one of the shops, which shows uh, correspondence between McGowan and the people who run Port Mirian, saying that he's looking forward to coming back and returning to the prisoner. And that was back in the 80s, but sadly that never happened. So, but there's still room. There's always going to be rumors whether the prisoner will come back. Is it worth the prisoner coming back or does it work better in the imagination and the time period? Because this is very much a time capsule of the world of the 1960s. Like I say, like we, you know, it is a time capsule of the 60s. But like I said, the themes that it explores and because of the unique setting of it, this is something that I think they could return to. But if you do return to it, I think films would work well because each one could be its own individual story. Don't do long form TV drama because... Like I said, that 2009 remake series, six episodes to tell three episodes worth of story at most, because you try to drag one aspect across too much. If you want to watch The Prisoner, and you really should if you consider yourself a geek, how do you do it, Andy? If you've got BritBox, all the episodes are on BritBox. And that's where I've been re-exploring it in recent months, and I will re-explore it again. I've had, I literally, before the show today, was watching Fallout again, just to refresh my memory of how bizarre that final episode was. It was a monkey. It was a monkey all along. You can also pick up the box set of the DVDs or the Blu-rays which also has some behind-the-scenes featurettes and introspections. Well worth adding to your own collection. Pick yourself up a copy on physical media, but in the meantime, get onto BritBox, get it watched. We'll be back with another deep dive next week. And now it's time for the reviews. I've been pretty lax this week, so Andy's done all the heavy lifting. But I am intrigued about your first choice, which is the Disney Plus version of the Peter Pan story. Peter Pan and Wendy. Peter Pan and Wendy, because of the director. Peter Pan? If you think you know the story... I always envisioned you as being... Taller? No, smaller, actually. Think again. I can Disney invites you to discover the magic Neverland. of a new adventure. Here! Hook wasn't always Hook. Just like old times. All your times are old, Captain. <laughs> Peter Pan and Wendy, rated PG. The movie event arrives April 28th, only on Disney+. When director David Lowry was handed the reins for this live-action remake of the Disney classic, itself merely one of a myriad of adaptations of the source material, it did make me sit up and pay attention. This is the same guy who gave new life to Pete's Dragon in 2016, showing that you can easily step out of the shadow of the animated offerings to deliver something unique. However, as the production was met with multiple stumbling blocks along the way, it appears that the animated pan's shadow was well and truly stitched onto this film, and we were looking at maybe another less than stellar entry into the live-action Disney library. When it was sunk onto streaming, its cinema release being pulled during production, it certainly didn't bode well. 
However, it does turn out that we needn't have worried as the end result is amongst the stronger of the adaptations. The story remains basically the same. Wendy Darling and her brothers are all obsessed with the tales of Peter Pan and his ongoing battles with Captain Hook. One night they're awoken when Peter bursts into their room chasing his shadow. Wendy helps him attach his shadow again and the boy who never grew up whisks them away to Neverland where they meet the Lost Boys and encounter the fearsome pirate Hook. There have been so many tellings of this tale over the decades that there seems to be nothing more to be done with it, which makes it quite refreshing that Lowry, who pursued this film as a passion project, manages to do just that. Whilst the start feels very much like a shot-for-shot redo of the animated movie, once the gang arrive in Neverland, that's when it begins to play a little different. Yes, there are key moments still within, but around it are some smart changes that make it less of a journey through different areas of the mystical land, with no real connective thread, and more of a story that flows naturally, building to an exciting climax. The relationship between Hook and Pan is built upon, as well as some backstory for the boy himself, and Tiger Lily is given a much more prominent role, whilst Tinkerbell is no longer packed with jealous attitude towards Wendy, and is instead helpful, kind and caring. Visually vivid and charming, and with a cast that overall deliver, although the first time outing by young actor Alexander Maloney as Pan feels a little stilted at times. The film is stolen by Jude Law's hook, delivering almost as scene-stealingly glorious a performance as Dustin Hoffman did in Hook. But while so many aspects are done so well, you can sense a whiff of studio pushbacks within, which damages it on occasions. Unlike Pete's Dragon, it feels very much like Lowry had his hands tied at various points of this, and whilst he clearly tried to push it past the echoes of earlier animated outings, it leans too close to them at points, undoing some of his good work. Still, this is a solid live-action adaptation of the Peter Pan tale, and will please even the most demanding of families. David Lowry's made an odd bedfellow with Disney, considering his, his other work. But I've got mm. to be honest, I really, really enjoyed Pete's Dragon. I thought it was, uh, yeah. it had taken a piece of not so great Disney movie and turned it into something that felt relevant and, and felt deep. And I, I thought it was marvellous. So on Lowry alone, I'm intrigued by this. Worth checking out. Get on to it. At the cinemas this week, Polite Society opened. Here we go. Polite Society is the bombastic girl power extravaganza you cannot live without. I'm not being dramatic, but these people are evil. I've got my eye on you. Let's dance. We need to break off this sham wedding. (laughs) Rude. You need to come with me if you want to live. Nice. Polite Society. A teenage wannabe martial artist stuntwoman, Rhea Khan, played by Priya Kansara, is distraught when her older sister Lena, played by Rita Araya, meets Salim, played by Akshay Khanna, at an Eid Mubarak party and soon becomes engaged to marry him. Rhea becomes convinced that Salim's family are up to something sinister and she vows to stop the wedding from taking place and uncover the sinister secrets Salim's mother, Rahila, played wonderfully by Neem Rabusha, is protecting Somewhat a satire of the class divide, somewhat a family drama, somewhat Scott Pilgrim-esque action comedy, Polite Society is writer-director Nida Manzor's first feature, and it showcases her skills style well, with snappy dialogue, vibrant visual flair, and wonderfully staged action sequences. Running at a delightful 104 minutes, it never feels too slow, nor does it feel that it's too rapidly paced, even though it tackles quite a lot over the runtime. The early part of the film serves well to give us an understanding of the family environment Rhea comes from, from her sister's mental state after dropping out of art college, to the support the pair offer each other in pursuit of their dreams, to their mother's shame at their family's low social standing in the community. We're also swiftly introduced to Rhea's school life and the outcast friends she bonds with, 
as well as the bully who opposes her at every step. Within the first 15 minutes, we get to know all we need to know and get to connect with Rhea before the main plot kicks in, and from that point, it just gets delightfully silly. As mentioned, there's a Scott Pilgrim vibe to this, and sadly I feel that just like that film, this will be woefully overlooked by audiences, becoming a cult favourite later on home release. Films like this deserve more attention, especially in an age when so many bemoan the number of remakes and sequels and lack of fresh ideas being churned out. Polite society, whilst not wholly original in general story, feels fresh and vibrant throughout. You know what? I know nothing about this film. I've seen posters for it. I've seen the odd trailer for it. It kind of came out of nowhere. Is it a British film? It's a British film, yeah, because it's looking at the British Muslim culture and arranged marriages within that, but doing it in an action, comedy adventure conspiracy kind of way like i said it's got aspects of scott pilgrim in there that really make it charmingly charmingly funny and finally final film this week is i was late to the day with getting round to watch searching which is the forerunner to this latest entry which is a spiritual sequel missing my mom never came home from her trip there's got to be a way to find her what about security footage? No! I'm not giving up on my mom. You're going to her boyfriend's email? He's a felon? Someone's hiding something. We're running out of time. Where is she? Missing. I was quite late to seeing Searching, the predecessor to this film, having only gotten around to it a couple of days before tackling this spiritual sequel. It's not directly linked, aside from small mention of the events of the previous film in the opening moments. I knew that I didn't have to watch the first film to see this one, but I felt like I should. With Searching, I discovered a film that I'd completely slept on, found myself thoroughly engaged with the drama as it unfolds via the, at the time of the release, quite unique on-screen manner. And admittedly, the method has been used in the few films since to varying effect. But that earlier film held up well to scrutiny over time. Missing, however, feels a little over-engineered. And it lacks the personal drama and tension that the first film offered. The story sees June's mother and new boyfriend go missing whilst on vacation in Colombia. And with the international investigation seemingly going too slow, she takes matters into her own hands and uses the power of internet technology to start a search for answers. However, she soon finds that her search for answers instead throws out many, many more questions, some of which she might not like the answer to. Now, whereas searching felt very reined in and personal, with a few twists and turns that felt believable and organic, missing ups the ante and delivers a much more varied set of revelations, with some feeling somewhat preposterous damaging the believability of the film. Feeling like it's trying to one-up the previous film by ramping the turns to such a degree, it takes a lot of suspension of disbelief with this film to engage with what should have been another strong emotional drama. The cast all give it their all. Storm Reed in the central role as June delivers particularly well, and I never felt bored of the film, but by the end it had gotten so stretched in credulity that I felt a little emotionally detached from what should have been impactful moments. Still, the stylistic approach of all the events being shown via live streams, desktop access and mobile phone screens still feels slick and it somewhat breaks the film free of the otherwise tropish nature of the story. But in an effort to deliver more than the previous film did, sadly, missing strips too far back from the personal aspects to detrimental effect. That's the reviews for this week. You and I will be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 next week. But other than that big movie, anything else to look forward to? Ip Man The Awakening. 
which is kind of like a reboot for the Ip Man franchise, but also referred to as the fourth film in the series. Lands unlimited release at cinemas. Nothing else is really going against Guardians of the Galaxy over this next week. Over on Now TV and Sky, this is one that I missed when it was on cinema release. Ticket to Paradise Lands, so I'll probably check that out. And there's also Mia and Me, the hero of Centopia, which I have no interest in. Over on Netflix, though, now this is one that I was sad to have missed when it got released at cinemas. A Man Called Otto arrives this week, and I've got that top of my list to get watched. Over on Amazon, James Gunn's big in the news with Guardians of the Galaxy 3, so Amazon are showing us The Suicide Squad. Also, Beautiful Disaster and Reminiscence both land on there this week. And another film that I missed on its limited to release, Disney Plus, Rye Lane lands this coming week. And I've heard a lot of good things about that, the British romantic comedy. And also, for those who love the Muppets, the Muppets Mayhem lands as well this week, following the Electric Mayhem on their short tour. Oh, I'm in. I'm in. Uh, Apple TV Plus also have Silo arriving this week. So there's a lot for streaming this week. Not much at the cinema, except for Guardians, but there's a hell of a lot going on on the streaming services. And that, folks, that takes us basically to near the end. But before we go, we're going to tell you about our neat things, stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we want to tell you about that might influence you to um, do exactly the same. Andy, do you have a neat thing for this week? Yeah, I've become something that I never thought I'd be. I've become that kind of video gamer who likes to just play something really pleasant where you're growing things and building things for people and, you know, talking to nice characters and helping them solve problems. You know, you know, in those uh, Animal Crossing kind of games, yeah, which I've never had any attention for or any appeal for, but I've discovered Dreamlight Valley, the Disney version, which is so delightful. Okay. <laughs> you enter this dreamlike world, which has been corrupted by a dark magics and you meet mickey and donald and goofy and you have to start helping them bring everyone back to dreamlight valley and get rid of the darkness that's plaguing it by growing crops and feeding things making things buying things building up your environments and it's just a pleasant simple game and throughout it you start recruiting people from other disney properties so my first door that i went through I recruited Wally to come and work for me. So I've now got him gardening for me and uh, helping me with crops. I go fishing with Goofy every now and then. I've got Moana there. She helps me on the fishing quests as well. I've got a spec for fishing. You level up as you're going along with your friendship with these characters. And you can give them skills to help you while you're doing other tasks. It's just so nice a game. That's all I can say about it. It's just so relaxing. It's it's not action-packed. When you have to go on quests, there's never anything where you've got to hit these buttons in this combination, otherwise you're going to die. No, you, you're not going to die in this game. This is just one of those nice drift drifting games. Disney's Dreamlight Valley is a joy to play. It sounds the entire antithesis of, of me finishing Alien Isolation, which is stressed yeah, me out it's, beyond belief. It's so far removed from the type of games that I normally gravitate to, because I'm normally a first-person shooter game. I'm normally like, you know, anything with action, adventure, or maybe a bit of horror. And yet this, this has just charmed me immensely, and I've spent so many hours on this over the past few weeks that it was inevitably going to be a neat thing. And that's it for this week. Dreamlight Valley. I'm playing it on PlayStation 5. You can get it on pretty much every format. And if you're a fan of anything Disney, be it Pixar, Disney animations, etc., there'll be some characters that you can't help but raise a smile when you find out that you're going to be recruiting them into your little community of newly built houses and gardens that you've 
made and so i'm proud of my gardens i've spent ages mapping out the perfect gardens that's how much i am stuck in this game now if you're into gardening you can come and do mine <laughs> my neat thing i've actually changed my neat thing for this week to go back to what we we're talking about within our deep dive which is the prisoner and i'm, I'm going to tell you my neat thing which is port Mirian as a as a holiday resort because i went there several years ago and it is absolutely beautiful as we said in the deep dive it was designed and built in an, an italian style so you've got this this welsh resort but with italian architecture uh, it was built by sir chloe williams ellis between 1925 and 1975 and as said in the style of an italian village it is an absolutely beautiful and bizarre place so you get people going because of the the architecture and you get people going because of the prisoner and it makes no bones about being a prisoner location you know there are shops and there are signs all over and there's even the taxi service uh, which runs around the village it is an absolutely beautiful place it's not cheap you can go on the day ticket or you can go and stay over the port Marion hotel and the village rooms are absolutely stunning uh, and after getting back into the prisoner and re-watching uh, a couple of episodes for this week it just reminded me what a wonderful wonderful place it was i, I was there for a significant birthday uh, some years back and i was blown away uh went for a long weekend i highly highly recommend port Marion as my neat thing for this week it's on my bucket list port Marion. you should go it is beautiful if you uh, go i i, I mean the, the hotel is fantastic but uh just staying in in the little lodges which is so reminiscent of the series and the tv just plays episodes of the prisoner all the time i'll just be paranoid that there's a camera watching me oh there is yeah don't worry and then if you try to leave there's a big white ball that stops you which i thought was a little bit a little bit sort of <laughs> uh, um over the top but hey <laughs> folks that's us we're done we'll be back again next week for another film file where we'll be talking news box office reviews deep dives you name it we've got it uh and we'll also be talking about guardians 3 it's finally going to come to an end. So it might be a bit heartbroken because James Gunn has pretty much told us that don't get too attached because someone's going to die. Oh, I know who I don't want it to be. And I know what James Gunn is like. And he's, he's just going to destroy us. But we won't spoil anything next week. Don't worry, we will not drop spoilers. We never do spoilers. But be sure to tune in next week to find out what we thought of it. We'll see you again next week. And I'll be seeing this guy, Andy Meekin, next week too. So take it easy for Andy. I'll not make any deals with you. I've resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. Be seeing you. Hide behind a cushion because you don't want to see somebody. Hide behind a cushion because you don't want. Start again. Hide behind a cushion because you don't want him. Oh, for goodness sake, speak in English. <laughs> Hide behind a cushion. There he is. That's the guy. There he goes. Sorry. Where did you go then? I slipped into I slipped into retro gaming mode and was there reminiscing about it came from the desert. Could be charging up the charts. Not much. Bugger all. I just went very quiet then. I'm going to just move on quickly, and I'm, I'm going to let you stop there because I, I can feel the rant you coming can feel... on. Whether you like more? it or not. More? Come <laughs> on. Oh. Darren blast his eyes. <laughs> In 3D.
<laughs> that's, 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 that's my thing for next week my opener for next week <laughs> it, uh, obviously I know it's going to be uh, filmed in colour because I remember shows in glorious technicolour yeah. <laughs> I am not a number I am a free man where am I in the village who is number one? Oh yeah you remember information whose side are you on that would be telling we want information 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 you won't get it by hook or by crook we will who are you the new number two who is number one you are number six i am not a number i am a free man yeah i know it all <laughs> <laughs> had an idea as to why it's that ice cream van it is oh, ice cream. Get, me ice, ice get me ice cream get, get me a 99 flake please um, <laughs> I've become something that I never thought I'd be. A woman. <laughs> <laughs>